You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. So I want to kind of start, if you could just tell me a little bit about you. Are you from Columbus originally and how'd you make your way here? Yeah, so I moved here. I moved to Westerville when I was in third grade. So I've spent most of my life here. Um, I went to the University of Toledo for school and then I worked at an agency there for a while. So I was in Toledo for about nine years. Then I moved to Orlando, worked at a PR agency there for about five years and then moved back to Columbus in 2009. And that's when I started Gavin. Got it. And so talk more about that decision, both to launch your own firm and, and the timing. 2009 is not exactly, I mean, I guess lots of people had time on their hands, but not in a great way. So <laughs> what, what prompted that decision? So I had been working at an agency in Orlando. I was the director of PR and it was around when social media got to be a thing. So we had people asking us like, what is Facebook and what is Twitter and why does it matter? Apparently I was the geekiest person in the office and they told me like, what is this stuff online and, and can you go figure it out? And why are people asking us about it? And more importantly, how do we sell services around it? So I launched a blog and a Twitter account and they gave me a lot of leeway and said, if I could find nonprofits that were interested in experimenting with that intersection of traditional and digital PR, I could do the work pro bono. Hopefully we'll help some nonprofits. We can all learn a little bit along the way. So as I was doing that, I was sharing what I was learning from those experiences online and was getting invited then to speak around the country about the intersection of PR and social media. And that was really valuable because I could see what other agencies were doing in that space and how they were building services around it. And I thought I had found this great growth opportunity for the agency. Uh So I scheduled a meeting with a partner in charge of business development and tried to make a case about why I shouldn't be the only person who could do this and how, you know, there's so much opportunity here and we should get everybody else involved. And he looked at me and said, no one here is going to make money off of social media. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd been at the agency for about five years, so it was probably the nudge that I needed to start thinking about what else was happening. It was, you know, to your point, it was around when we were in the recession, but the agency I was working at was still doing very well. I had a a good, well-paying, comfortable job, but I think I needed that nudge to to think about what am I doing long-term. I knew I wanted to come back to Columbus. My family is still here. I knew I wanted to be here. But because it was the height of the recession, nobody was hiring PR people. And I didn't really have a network here because I'd been gone for so long. So I thought, well, maybe I could try something on my own. Because of the speaking, I'd been getting offers to do some consulting on the side. So I knew there was some semblance of interest of people who would pay me to do this. Um, So I just decided to take a little bit of a leap, basically, and started 
December of 2009 is when I started Gabin, moved back to Columbus that same month and then was off and running. How did you go about acquiring clients as, as just you starting out? Yeah, I tried to think about myself, like think about Gabin as a client. So think about what are we, what am I doing from a content standpoint, a PR standpoint, making sure I was out speaking at the right events, thinking through referral sources. When I started the business, about 75% of all of my new clients came from relationships that began online. And most of that came back to Twitter. So I was very active, very early on in Twitter. Um, and that was super helpful in generating leads and opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Twitter today? Because I think in, as a journalist, this is mostly for my own edification, you know, <laughs> we sometimes feel like we are the only people on Twitter and we're just talking to each other. But obviously it's also like such a great platform for sharing news. So yeah. kind of what do you see happening with that platform? Are you still really active on it today and are your clients getting value out of it? I love it personally. It's my favorite network. It's the one I think where I get the most value. I'm a little bit of a news junkie though. So I love when all the journalists are on it, sharing all their stuff. So I do find it really valuable. I think that, you know, it's one of those things you have to be willing to put the time in. Like it's, I think it's easier to be on Instagram than, and get value out of that than to get value out of Twitter. But I do think there's a ton of opportunity there still for brands and for individuals. So I love it. Are you, is your firm doing anything on, on TikTok? I guess now is maybe a weird time or maybe a great time to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got some clients that are doing some things on TikTok. Most of our clients are not really doing very much there. I think there's a lot of security concerns still about TikTok mm -hmm. and what's happening over there. So it, you know, it's interesting. We monitor it very closely because a lot of memes are starting on on TikTok that then you'll see translate over to Instagram or Twitter or wherever. So we're certainly monitoring it and kind of paying attention, but we're not necessarily actively creating content for a ton of clients on TikTok. I was just wondering, and I guess you can talk about this more generally, as someone who's kind of an early adopter of a, you know, an earlier social platform that people didn't necessarily see, is that something you've, you know, kind of continued to be mindful of throughout your career? <laughs> I try to be, and I try to really make sure that I'm creating the space for the people who work for me to be aware. And, and so we've got a number of people on my team who are on TikTok and love it. And I am not super interested in it personally, but there are lots of people on the team who are. So yeah, we do try to think about like, how can we be continuing to push the envelope on things? Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, created a chat bot for a client. We've built a, an Alexa app for a client. We're doing... Um, now there's so much happening on Zoom. We did a, a kind of virtual gather. We've, we've got some virtual gatherings that we're organizing for clients using technology in a different way than what we would have thought of even just a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, so we do try to make sure that we're, we're thinking constantly about like, how can we add a layer of technology to this to make it even better? Well, going back now a little bit to when you were starting the firm, um, when did you make your first hire and, and what was that experience like? So I started in December of 2009 and then that spring hired, had an intern. So, and then used interns for a few months um, until September of 2010. And then I hired a post-grad intern 
and told her that my intention was as soon as I could to bring her on full time as an account coordinator. But what I found was that I needed the, I needed another person, a support person, because I was so far in the day-to-day work for the clients that I wasn't able to kind of pick my head up enough and spend time on business development. So I knew that if I had one other person who could take some of that work, then I could go spend a little bit more time on business development and then pretty quickly be able to hire somebody. So she started in September, hired her a couple months later, full-time, hired another person later that year, full-time, and then, you know, kind of added a person or so a year after that for the first few years. And then when we were four years in, I think our team was about eight people, maybe something like that. And then we signed Walgreens as a client. And that was a a pretty kind of watershed moment for us. And then we needed to staff up to be able to do that work. So added a bunch of people to the team right then. And then it, you know, the growth really picked up from there. You mentioned sort of when you first started hiring, you had, you had been to heads down. Are you now, I would assume you're now at the point where you're working on the business as opposed to in the business, or are you still doing client work and how do you balance that? I don't do nearly as much client work. I'll do every once in a while I'll get pulled in if there's some kind of strategic work that that I can be helpful on. I'll do a fair amount of the like crisis and issues management type communication. I'm, I'm pretty heavily involved in still, but the day-to-day client work I'm not doing really at all. We have a team of people who are better at that than I am at this point. So I spend most of my time really kind of figuring out how do I run the business and grow the business and support the team without doing the day-to-day. Yeah. Do you miss the day-to-day? Are you, you know, sad at all about that? that part of being a business owner or do you like it? You know, it's funny. I uh, don't think I understood how much I would enjoy the business side of running a business. I love it. And I am able to keep my hands just enough involved in the client work. So if there's a project that comes in that I'm personally interested in or that I think I would get a lot of like enjoyment out of, then I'll dip into that one a little bit, but I can kind of dip in and dip out of client work as I want to. We use Slack in our company. We've got a brainstorm channel and I can, you know, I stay in some of the client channels so I can like drop in with my two cents every once in a while, or if someone's struggling on, you know, kind of finding what's the right hook on a pitch, I can be helpful if need be or brainstorm a social campaign or whatever, if it's, if people are talking about it in Slack, but, um, so it's enough that it makes me feel like I still have that creative outlet, but I get a lot of value and, and a lot of fulfillment out of the business side of it, which as I, I was a PR major who took like no math classes. So it's <laughs> to me that I love that part of it as much as I do. Well, that's great. It worked out well then. So. Yeah. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> um, and I imagine given the industry you're in is, is Gavin largely women at the firm? Do you have any, any men working there at all? <laughs> We've got a couple, but it's a, it's a, you know, the industry is a fairly female dominated industry, but we do have a handful of men at the company. Gotcha. Has that, has that been your experience pretty much throughout working in PR largely? Yeah. 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 I guess I don't have a question to ask about that so much as it's just different than some of the other people that I have on the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's interesting seeing, you know, in an industry that is so heavily dominated by, and yet it still faces a lot of challenges. I, I don't know the exact statistic off the, my, off the top of my head, but I looked into this a couple of years ago that PR as an industry is like 80% female. But when you look at who leads yeah. the larger agencies, it's overwhelmingly men. Yeah. Um, and so there is, even in an industry that is so dominated by women, there is still something that's happening 
that is preventing women from rising all the way up to the top of the industry at a proportion equal to the space that they're taking up in the industry as a whole. Yeah, I think you, and I don't, I don't know, I probably shouldn't, don't have statistics to say, but that's certainly anecdotally, I think the experience you see in journalism too, which is, mm -hmm. you know, there were two men in my graduating class in the journalism major out of, you know, 15 of us. And so it certainly felt at that point, like, oh, this industry is all women because communications as a whole is so heavily female. But then, you know, several places I've worked anecdotally and elsewhere, the editors are men. That was not, and then I think the other thing that I, that I see at least as the women in communications is it's great that like STEM is obviously a thing to be valued and to encourage young people to do, but it also leads to the, an, a devaluing of communications and PR and untangling how much that's because women are largely the ones who work in those industries is a little- Women's work, of course we're gonna devalue yeah. it. <laughs> it's English and soft skills. Why would we yes. value that? Yeah, it is interesting and it, you know, I think it, it, as from a journalism standpoint, and we see this from a, on the, on our side of the, the world also, but we have, you know, we're working with clients that are developing pharmaceuticals and we're working with clients in healthcare and we're working with clients in AI. Like, sure. What we do is communication and there's a lot of writing in it, but we have to be well-versed in a wide range of highly technical subjects. Otherwise we're not able to do the job for our clients. So I think if you underappreciate how smart journalists have to be to be able to cover the wide range of things that they're covering and to be able to quickly grasp a lot <laughs> you're i think doing a disservice to the field well i appreciate that <laughs> also the you know it's easy to to copy and paste jargon or whatever but in your industry yeah. it's always better to actually say what the jargon means and that takes actually understanding. Well that's what we spend a lot of time helping like engineers unengineer their talk, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> talk like an engineer, most of your stakeholders aren't gonna get it or they're not gonna understand why that matters or how that helps them. And so we can sort of be that liaison between and help translate, okay, here's your technical know-how and know here's how you need to talk about it to make sure that the broader audience understands. Yeah, for sure. Shifting gears a little bit, I know paid leave is a topic that you're particularly passionate about, I guess I'll say, which is also uh, right now a, a big topic du jour as lots of companies are grappling with sick leave during this pandemic. But just tell me a little bit first about kind of why and how that's been something that's a big focus of yours. Sure. So I had my son in 2013. And when I, you know, at that point, we were a small company, and we didn't have a whole lot of policies in place yet. So I was the first person to have a kid. And so when I was going through that process, I ended up going into labor five weeks early. We were on the highway driving back from Cleveland. And so we were like by the Lodi outlet malls and my contractions all of a sudden were two minutes apart. Um, and we were like not anywhere near a major hospital. So we pull off to the side of the road and go to the Lodi General Hospital. They did not have a, a maternity ward and could not help me. The My, oh my son breach. And so I knew I needed a C-section and they like could not do that. But because of the way the wind was blowing, it actually would have, so we ended up getting life lighted, but because of the way the wind was blowing, it would have taken twice as long to uh, get us to 
Cleveland or to Columbus as it did to take us to Akron. So oh. we ended up going to Akron, giving birth there. My son was five weeks early. He, I had an emergency C-section and then spent the next 13 days with him in the NICU. And during those 13 days, I never once had to worry about if I would get paid for the time outside of work, I didn't have to worry about if I would have a job to go back to. Of course, I'd have a job. I own the company. But even still, it was the most stressful experience of my life. But I was able to stay singularly focused on what do I need to do to get my son healthy so we can get home. Mm -hmm. Having a child in any situation is stressful. I couldn't imagine then having that added layer of stress of wondering about if I have a job or if I'm going to get paid. And the reality is before, you know, coronavirus, the reality is that only 18% of American workers have access to paid leave after having a child and only 4% of hourly workers. And those are the people who need it the most. Mm -hmm. So as our company grew and evolved, we needed to start to put some real policies in place. And paid leave was one of those things that we knew I had a person pregnant in my office, we knew we needed a policy for. So in 2016, we rolled out Gavin Loves Families, which is our version of paid leave. We provide 10 weeks of paid leave to all new moms and new dads, whether they give birth or adopt, plus a two-week transition period. For me, when I went back to work, and I only, I, you know, the company was very small, and it was very different at that point, so I couldn't take 12 weeks of paid leave. But even still, I knew that that time coming back to work was a really hard adjustment, so that's why we have that two-week transition period, so people can work from home, they can set their schedule, they can only work a couple hours a day if they want, they could just work a couple days a week, whatever they want to get their family acclimated to starting to ease back into work is fine with us. And then, you know, since then have been a pretty vocal advocate about the importance of paid family leave. And in the absence of state and federal leadership, then the onus falls to the business to figure out how to make it work for their employees. Um, and I think it's really important that businesses do that. I think it's even more important that we have a national funded policy, <laughs> but you know, that's a whole other conversation, yeah. I guess. <laughs> what is the, what's kind of the business case that you would make for having a generous policy? So I think having a policy is better for, it helps us from a top talent recruitment and retention standpoint. I think it helps us make sure that the work we're doing is high quality. Like if you ask a new mom to come to work two weeks after she gave birth, you're not going to get high quality work from her because the baby is barely sleeping and her body hasn't gotten back to normal. Um, even if you ask a new dad to come back to work, like you're not going to get top quality work from a new dad at that point either. And so I think it helps us, you know, helps make sure that we're delivering the quality of work that we need to be delivering. I also just think it's the right thing to do. <laughs> um, I think we expect our people to work really hard and this is a major moment in their life and, and they should get to spend that time with the baby. But I think the, you know, I think it helps reduce costs. So from a business standpoint, I think you can make a business case that it does help reduce costs. I do think it's a very hard benefit to add or to be able to offer for most businesses. We're fortunate in a professional services environment that our margins are good. And so I can absorb that cost if I need to when I have somebody out on leave. And so I can self-fund this benefit. That's not the reality for a lot of companies with lower margins. And I think in the coronavirus moment, we see the impact of that. When people are not able to take time when, when they're feeling ill, that contributes then to germs and diseases spreading. Mm -hmm. It was interesting at the beginning of it when people just kept saying, if you don't feel good, don't go to work. Well, that's just not reality for most people. So mm -hmm. I'm glad you know, that, that part of the 
legislation that has passed includes paid leave, but I hope that we recognize that it's not something we need just at this one moment in time, but that in reality, we need to figure out how to do better by our employees. On a relatedly, especially because you're talking about parents and all of this, both how are you personally handling being a working mom with your kid at home? And then how are you supporting your team members who have kids? Sort of what are your expectations as they also, you know, have this sudden other thing to handle? It is a wild time. So, you know, I, I keep reminding myself and trying to remind our team that no one is operating at peak productivity right now. And we all just need to recognize that and, and accept it. For myself, in my situation, so my son's dad and I are divorced. So he lives in Grandview. And so my son splits the week during the week. So that has been helpful because then on the days when my son's not here, I can be all in on work and super focused and get a whole lot done. The days that he is here, then, you know, we kind of, it's a little bit, <laughs> not maybe quite as productive all the time, but we're figuring it out and making it work. Thankfully, he's six and we've got the school we go to, he's in Bexley schools and they've been amazing with, with providing online curriculum. So we've been able to figure it out and make it work for the people who work for me, uh, for them, just trying to give as much flexibility. So we have one person who her and her husband have basically divided the day. So she is available if we need her like first thing in the morning, but really like her work day more starts like kind of middle of the day, but then she's working later into the evening. Mm -hmm. So her and her husband are kind of taking shifts with the kids. So we're just trying to be flexible and, and accommodate and just recognize that nobody's in a normal situation right now and we're just all trying to figure it out together. How does your son feel about everything? Is he like aware of what's happening in the world? <laughs> He's, I mean, he's six, right? So six and a half. So he's aware. He knows that like right now he's supposed to be in school. So he gets it. I try to be very careful. I don't have the news on when he's around. We're not, you know, while I pay very close attention to the news and the news cycle, I'm not having the press conferences on when he's sitting in the living room. So I'm trying to be very careful about what of this I'm explaining to him. You know, kids don't have the perspective that adults have to understand how these things go and, and that we will get to the other side of this at some point. So, I, you know, I want him to understand that this is not normal and that you can't go hang out at your friends' houses and we can't play on the playgrounds and here's why. So I think it's important that he has some context. Um, but I also try to be really careful about how much context I give him because he's six and a half. I don't want him living in fear. I don't think he needs to be living with this like cloud of anxiety every day over him. So I try to really carefully monitor yeah. that. Seems very challenging. What are you doing for yourself to either unwind when you're stressed or, you know, I think we all have moments where we're feeling anxious about all of this. Yeah. So I have a Peloton. So I'm very fortunate <laughs> that I have a bike in my house and I can ride. Mm -hmm. uh, now that the weather is nicer, I have a bike. So I've been going, I, I rode 20 miles yesterday and it wow. felt so good to get on the bike and get outside. Uh, so a lot of bike riding when I can. I meditate. My I will admit my meditation practice has not been as consistent or strong um, of late, probably because like I think we're all tired and there's anxiety and we're being pulled in a lot of different directions. But I do at least try to take a little bit of time to focus on meditation and breathing and staying very grounded. Interestingly, I used to do yoga a lot and have kind of out of the past couple of years, just sort of fallen out of the practice of doing yoga. But I've now done it, I think, five days in a row. So I think that maybe it took a global pandemic for me to rediscover my love of yoga, but <laughs> just starting every morning, even if it's just like 10 or 15 minutes doing a quick yoga exercise, 
has been really helpful for me. Are you, uh, do you have like a class or something that you're doing remotely or? Yeah, so in the Peloton app, they have yoga classes. So I can use the Peloton app to get, you know, a series of classes. And I'm just doing the like 10 or 15 like minute beginner classes. Yeah, it's not yeah. a super hard practice at this moment, but it is good of like just a little bit of kind of get out of the day to day and pull yourself away from work. Yeah, I feel about both yoga and meditation. Well, yoga, I'm not flexible enough to even like, which I know the answer is just do more yoga, but like <laughs> so hard, like the initial thing. And then similarly meditation, if I try to clear my mind, all I think about is whatever I'm stressed out about. So, yeah. so what my meditation, so I work with a meditation coach every week and what he reminded me of that is very helpful is that is the work of meditation, right? So like, you're not going to sit there for 10 minutes and have no thoughts in your head. The idea is recognize when those thoughts come in and then pull yourself back to center and back to breathing. And that, that recognizing the thought and coming back to center is the work of the meditation mm -hmm. practice. Like, I think it's this misnomer of like, well, I'm going to sit here for 10 minutes and have no thoughts. That's impossible. Like nobody could do that, especially now. Yeah. Um, but if you can recognize when your mind is starting to pull you in a direction and come back, that is, I think a really valuable practice, especially for right now when we are living in, in with so much uncertainty. Um, it's, I think having this, this mindfulness and meditation practice has been helpful for me because I can at least recognize when my mind starts to swirl and create like, oh my God, well, what if this happens? Or what if this happens? And like, that's just not a productive use of, of brain power. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give it a, another go maybe because I think it would be good for me. <laughs> um, with like three minutes or five minutes. It's yeah. super valuable just to start the practice. Got it. Well, I think kind of the, the last thing that I like to ask in these interviews is just if you were talking to somebody, obviously a crazy time for someone who's just graduating from college and starting oh. their career, <laughs> but, but kind of regardless or because of the pandemic, what's, what's a piece of advice that you think young women should have early in their careers if they kind of want to, you know, one day own their own shop or follow in your footsteps? So I think a couple of different things. I think building your network, even when you don't need it is really important. And right now it's a hard time. Like you can't just go grab coffee with people like you normally would, but finding ways to, to build that network is so important because you never know when you may need it or when someone might be able to open a door for you. And so building and nurturing the network is key. And then I think the other part is know what you're worth and ask for it. It's unbelievable to me when I make offers to women, how many of them accept on the spot. I've had, I've had people accept the job before I've even told them how much I'm offering them to pay them, which is shocking. And no guy would ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think making sure that you know how much you're worth and that you're asking for that and, and make a good case of, of why you deserve that amount of money. You know, it's hard if you start being underpaid and undervalued at the beginning of your career, it becomes really hard to play catch up later on. So just being smart from a dollars and cents standpoint. And then I think the other piece I would say is making sure that you're aligning your work with your values. And I, I, I don't think that um, you have to find all of your purpose in work, but I do think it's important that you work for somewhere that aligns with your values. And so making sure that you know who you are as an individual and what are the things that matter to you and that you go find an employer who respects and, and aligns with those values as well. I want to go back to the knowing your worth question because yeah. I think this is a thing that I've certainly talked about with my peers as as a woman as a female business owner which I hate that preface but as a female business owner who's aware 
of some of these tendencies about how you know particularly young women will take a job without asking for more when you're making an offer to someone are are you offering them the top of what you can pay them or are you offering less than you know wanting them to come back to you for more and sort of how do you think about that as the one doing the hiring yeah so i offer what i think that they should be paid for that job i'm not trying to like pull a fast one and like lowball them and see if they negotiate I, I just don't think that's like a great way to run a business you know i'm on the board of the women's fund of central ohio and have spent a lot of time in and around women's issues and so i have also put on my like woman empowerment hat sometimes like I had somebody to the person who accepted I've had a, I had a person when I asked you know I, I do not ask about salary history in interviews but I do ask what do you want to make in this role so what do you think you're worth what do you want to make and I had somebody once tell me a number and then she said but if you can only pay me five thousand dollars less than that that's okay too and i was like oh come on <laughs> that moment was like listen i'm gonna put my business owner hat aside and put on my like women empowerment hat like you can't say that in an interview so every once in a while in the salary conversation i do find myself like not maybe doing what's like best if a, from a business standpoint but i do try to do what's best by the human that i'm that i'm talking to um and i think that that's really important and i think business owners it goes back to that values piece, right? Like I'm not trying to squeeze every nickel and dime out of them. I want to pay people what they're worth and I expect them to work hard. And, but at the same time, I feel like I owe it to them to have, you know, to be fair. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's just, it's always good to hear the, the other side. Cause I, I certainly have done that been asked what I wanted from a job and given them like a $5,000 range, which looking back, I'm like, why didn't I just say the top of the range? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Why am I giving them the lower bound? Like, let them set the lower bound. Yes. <laughs> so, well, terrific. Well, that's all great advice, and it was great to talk to you, Heather. Uh, thank you so much. Thank for you. I appreciate it. <laughs>